You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. If you would, uh, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. We will be starting in verse 7. And if you do not have your Bibles, the scripture will be on the screen. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenants, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each other, uh, one, uh, one his neighbors, and each one his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Redemption Hill kids, uh, ages 2 to 4, as well as grades 1 to 3, you are dismissed. All right, you may be seated. This is my, my monthly statement about kids. Um, if it serves you, we have some limited redemption kids, but kids, you're never a burden. You're always a blessing. So if you're in the service, um, thanks for being here. We do have kids' sermon notes right over there on the music stand. Also, we have totes in the hallway. Um, it's basically an activity bag. So if that serves you, you can grab that as well. Well, it's good to see you all. Uh, before I pray and preach, I have a few thoughts for you as we continue to make our way through the book of Hebrews, the long, plodding journey through the book of Hebrews. Uh, I hope it's been profitable for you. I've really enjoyed it personally. Uh, first, we're in a section of the book of Hebrews that is, uh, I, I think of it as connected like a, a, a spider web. It, it's not like... Uh, Dominoes. You, know, you have dominoes and you kind of stack one against the other and you, you, you press the one domino and all of them kind of fall in line one at a time. That's not what we have here in Hebrews 7 to Hebrews 10. It's more like connected like a spider web. There's a more complex design. I mention this because as we continue to talk about covenants, you might be helped by going back to the last two sermons on the topic. So if you missed a Sunday or whatever and you're like, okay, Help me make sense of what's going on with, we got New Covenant and Old Covenant, and got Abrahamic Covenant, Mosaic Covenant, what's going on? Though perhaps those last two sermons will serve you to help see the design of the spider web. Second, you have been hearing about the Old Covenant and New Covenant. 
I want you to remember that both covenants are a part of God's plan of redemption. Do not ever think that the old is bad and the new is good. What you need to know is both serve a purpose. I'll talk more about that uh, in my sermon. Last, we're going to see once again how the book of Hebrews interprets the Old Testament. I hope that's been helpful for you. It's been really helpful for me personally. Um, just following the lead of the author of Hebrews, be like, okay, how do I read my Old Testament, right? Just for fun, here are all the Old Testament books quoted in the book of Hebrews. We saw Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, 2 Samuel, Proverbs, <laughs> Psalms, Haggai, Habakkuk, Isaiah, and now this morning, the prophet Jeremiah, the book of Jer- Jeremiah, right? And most of these Old Testament books are quoted more than once. So you see how the book of Hebrews is saturated with Old Testament scripture. I've said this many times, part of the ongoing application for you through this sermon series is learning how to read your Bible and seeing how scripture is constantly pointing to Christ. That's the whole point of the author of Hebrews going back to the Old Testament. He's saying, hey, look here. This is about Jesus. And so I hope that informs your Bible reading. And just so you know, before I pray here, also on that music stand up to my left, your right, is I got 40 copies of 32 Old Testament passages that are quoted in the book of Hebrews. I encourage you to grab one Put it in your Bible, and you can even make notes on that. And you can make notes about, okay, this is how I see the author of Hebrews using the Old Testament. So make a point of how much we're learning about the Old Testament as we go through a New Testament book. And for what it's, for what it's worth, um, the other book of the Bible that, ha- that is just saturated with Old Testament, with the Old Testament, is actually the Gospel of John. So if you're thinking to yourself, is there like a like book in the, in the New Testament? I would point you to John. All right. Those are all kind of my caveats for the morning. Let me pray, and let's get into God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. And this morning, we come underneath your Word, knowing that it is authoritative in our lives. And Lord, my prayer is to be faithful to what you have spoken and what you continue to speak. And be with my friends this morning who sit in front of me. In the power of the Holy Spirit, I trust that you are working in their lives for their good, and for your glory. We pray this in the only name we can pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most familiar passages that we use when we celebrate the Lord's table, which we do every single Sunday, is from 1 Corinthians 11. And many of you have heard this. Uh, We use different texts for communion, but this is obviously a common one. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. Why do we read in 1 Corinthians 11, This cup is the new covenant in my blood? 
if you're anything like me, sometimes you just kind of read past things and we don't stop to ask the question, why? And that's what I want us to do right here. Why? Why is it there? What is the connection between the blood of Christ and the new covenant? This sermon is going to help make sense of that statement and I hope add a meaningful understanding to taking the sacrament of communion. Acknowledging there is a new covenant means there was an old covenant. For the last two weeks, we have explored the relationship between the old and new covenants. We have seen from Hebrews 7 and Hebrews 8 that with the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, the old is out and the new is in. What was a shadow in the Old Testament is found to be the substance which is in Christ. As you can tell, the theme continues this morning and then the next few weeks. But this morning and in the next few weeks, we're actually going to look at the details. The fact has been established that there is a new covenant. Now, what about the particulars of the change? It's not enough to say you're going to replace one thing with another, like you're going to replace Pepsi with Coke or vice versa. Right? You want to know the details. We need to be shown why replacing one with the other is necessary and good. You have been told from the book of Hebrews that the new covenant is better because Jesus is superior. Now we're going to ask why. This is, this is constantly what I'm doing with my, my seventh and eighth graders when I teach class. Um, I'm always asking why. Why do you believe that? I do not tell them to ask why out of a spirit of skepticism. Far from it. But I want them to understand the substance of what they believe. I want you this morning to ask why the new covenant, why, so that you can understand the particulars. Many of you know the context of the book of Hebrews. The audience of this sermon was likely persecuted Christians who converted from Judaism. And this audience would have been under pressure to turn back to Judaism and or do that or conform to Roman culture. It makes sense that the original audience was Jewish converts. They would, have, they would not needed a commentary to make sense of all the Old Testament quotes and illusions. They grew up going to their Jewish version of Awana. They had their Bible sword drills, whatever. They went to bed meditating on the Word of God, Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. This means the book of Hebrews was a massive sermon that served as an apologetic, which means defense, of a better and new covenant established by the blood of Christ. That's some of the context. There are additional contextual matters that the original audience would have identified, and I want to point out. As I've already pointed out, the author of Hebrews is quoting Jeremiah 31, which would have been a part of any good Jew's Bible memory drill. What is interesting is that this passage from Jeremiah 31 is the longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament. And we're going to break it down this morning. The quote from Jeremiah 31 is bookend by the same message. The arrival of the new covenant has displaced the old covenant. You can simply go to Hebrews 8 verse 7 and then jump down to Hebrews 8 verse 13. The old covenant was inadequate because God's covenant people could not keep the law. But the inadequacy of God's perfect law shows us why we need a better covenant. So, 
Let's see what's so great about the new covenant. Take a look at Hebrews 8, verses 8 and 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Now, first of all, history matters. You cannot understand the gravity of the New Testament if you do not know history. The Exodus is mentioned, verse 9, to remind you and me of the grace and mercy of God. The God who rescued the Hebrew people in the book of Exodus is going to provide another kind of Exodus under the new covenant. That parallel is made all the time in Holy Scripture, pointing back to this Exodus, the Passover, right? And us seeing a greater Exodus through Christ. If you were to flip over to Jeremiah 31, you would see a slight difference from what you read in Hebrews 8. God is called a husband who led the Hebrew people by the hand, leading them out of Egypt. I I like the husbandly picture of God who rescues his bride from slavery. It was not long after God led his people out of Egypt that he made a covenant with Israel. However, it was not God who did not uphold his end of the covenant. That was Israel's fault. It's hard to talk about the new unless we understand the old. We continue to read in verse 9. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. The notion that God showed no concern for his people means that because Israel continually broke the covenant, he gave them over to the consequences of their actions. If Israel were to walk in obedience, there would be blessing. It's no different than Adam and Eve in the garden. You walk in obedience, there's going to be blessing. You walk in disobedience, guess what? Curses. Curses. Here's an example of a curse following disobedience to God in the Old Testament. Uh, Logan, Ryan, and I are reading the Bible together. Right now we're finishing up 1 Samuel. And then we kind of get on the messaging app and we leave voicemails to one another about some of the things that we're learning as we read the Bible together. Here's one discussion point between the three of us. In 1 Samuel 15, the Lord speaks to Saul through the prophet Samuel. The Lord wants Saul to wipe the the Amalekites off the face of the earth. The Amalekites are the perpetual enemy of Israel. And the Lord wants Saul to respond to their ongoing atrocities. Saul is to obliterate everything, including what they own. Everything. All of it. The money, the goods, the pl- no plundering. Just destroy it all. We might not know why God wanted such a de- decisive and final destruction of the Amalekites at that point. But the command is clear, right? It's very clear. But we read in 1 Samuel 15, 9, is that Saul and the people spared Agag the king, 
And Saul, and I'm quoting here, took the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatting calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. Saul clearly disobeyed. As a result, the Lord spoke through Samuel and told Saul he was going to take away his crown. Like in that moment, it's like not having it. You're no longer going to be king, Saul. Under the old covenant, disobedience to God's word and his law brought about that kind of curse. We see the pattern over and over and over and over when you read your Old Testament. Here's a little more history of the old covenant that informs our understanding of Jeremiah 31. The prophet Jeremiah spoke these words before Israel came out of exile. If you know the storyline of the people of God in the Old Testament, you will recall that ongoing disobedience, just like we saw with Saul, resulted in exile. God wanted Israel to worship him, and Israel's chronic problem was worshiping idols. I mean, we could have been clued in to this chronic problem of idolatry the moment the Old Covenant was instituted. All the way back in the book of Exodus, you have Moses, God talking to Moses. He comes down with the Ten Commandments. He's got two tablets, I mean, written by the finger of God. And what does Moses see? Idolatry. You guys chose to make a calf and worship that. You couldn't be patient. So you turn to an idol. There are other problems that grieve God, but the disobedience of Israel can be boiled down to idol worship. Fast forward from Moses in Mount Sinai, and we see generations of idol worship. God used Babylon as his agent of judgment against Israel for their sins of idolatry and rebellion against him. There were actually several different times during this period, probably 607 to 586 B.C., when the Jews were taken captive. It's like Babylon went back in and took more Jews and and took them out and took them to Babylon. With each successive rebellion against Babylonian rule, Nebuchadnezzar led his armies against Judah until they laid siege on Judah, laid siege for a year, and then finally took it and then destroyed the temple leaving Jerusalem in ruins. Now, I would forgive you for thinking to yourself, man, this whole old covenant thing is not going great. It's not working out. I get that, right? God wants a people to obey him. God wants soul allegiance of worship. But here we are. Sin has taken root, and it's everywhere. It's run roughshod over everything. Sure, there are moments when individuals buck the cultural apostasy, but on the whole, God's covenant people were exiled for a reason. So, how are we doing? Redemption Hill Church. It's like, where's the hope? <laughs> because God is merciful. And he does keep his promises. The exile of God's covenant people would not last forever. For 70 years, which is about a generation, right? 
For 70 years, the people of God were scattered under the rule of another empire. The story of God's people in the Old Testament does show us the limitations of the Old Covenant. The other important fact about the Old Covenant is that it was a mixed community of people, right? Not everyone who lived under the Old Covenant lived and believed in God. Now, it is tempting to say that the Old Covenant with all of its regulations and laws was ungracious, but that's not true. The Old Covenant was shot through with the grace of God. The question was, will the people of God be recipients of God's grace through active obedience? The answer, as we've seen, was no. Hence the Babylonian exile. All of this is the backdrop to what we read in Hebrews 8 and why Jeremiah 31 is quoted here. It actually gets quoted again in Hebrews 10. God's covenant people will not be left without hope. There's always hope. Jeremiah 31 helps us to understand what God has been up to as he has been providentially at work throughout human history. Like that's your history. Everything I just talked about, going back to the Old Testament, that's our history as God's people. So let's break down the rest of Jeremiah 31 as we see it in Hebrews 8. And I want to show you some of the principles of the new covenant under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Here are a few headers to help guide you through this passage. First header is the true Israel. I'll briefly talk about that. The second one is the law reapplied. That's an important topic we've got to look at here. Third Heading one people with one true God, a law for all, and then a fruit of the law is the gospel. So if you're a note taker, hopefully that serves you. Read with me Hebrews 8 verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Now stop for a moment. The prophet Jeremiah is telling us about what God is going to do with true Israel. Now, I'm not talking about replacement theology, for those of you who know that. I'm talking about the people of God who live by faith. Faith is going to be the key ingredient of the new covenant. Faith has always been an ingredient to knowing God, which is why we have Abraham held in high regard. We'll get to that in Hebrews 11. He believed in God by faith. Under the new covenant, the cross works eschatologically backwards and forwards. Let's keep reading. And I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Now let's stop again. Here's another reason why the moral aspects of law continue to be binding for the people of God. We have seen over and over how the ceremonial and sacrificial laws have been fulfilled through Christ. To the degree that these aspects of the law have been fulfilled by Christ, they are now applied to the mind and heart. Think with me for a moment of how this is actually working itself out. We have seen in previous weeks that we do not need an earthly priest to seek forgiveness of sins. Why? Because Jesus is our great high priest. We do not need to go to a temple to offer sacrifices and give an offering because in Christ, the church is now that temple. In a very real sense, this is how the law is being applied to the mind and heart under the new covenant. We point to Christ. By faith, we receive the law and praise God that Christ fulfilled the ceremonial and sacrificial aspects of the law. 
We now are not, we know that we're not supposed to murder. We know that we're supposed to honor our father and mother. So we see how the moral aspects of law work a little differently than the ceremonial and sacrificial. In the power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord has written the law, all of it, onto the mind and heart of his people. Now, I take a moment to point this out because the law, I think, has been massively misunderstood by Christians in the 20th and 21st century. I think massively misunderstood. In the mid-1800s, a novel theology actually came onto the scene in Ireland, and then it took root in the United States. This novel theology said that the law was only for Israel under the Old Covenant. I think we're seeing from the book of Hebrews that it's proving that idea wrong. Again, the law needs to be rightly understood. That's the important thing, rightly understood in the new covenant. Now, moving on to our next stanza, we read, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I think this is the crux of Jeremiah's prophecy. This is in part why the author of Hebrews picks it up. Where the old covenant was conditional, it was contingent upon both parties upholding the agreement, the new covenant is unconditional. God will have a people that will worship him and him alone. Further, God will never cease to be their God. When God, in the power of the Spirit, grips the human heart and gives the gift of faith, you are God's forever. When I was thinking about this particular part of of Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8, I was just thinking about that song that we sing sometimes, and he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. He will not let me go. How comforting that should be for God's people. I mean, to, to, to use maybe charitable words, I'm a dumb dumb, you know? So prone to wander, so prone to leave the God I love. And yet the truth of the matter is he will hold me fast. He is my God. And I am part of his people. From Jeremiah 31, I hear echoes of John 10. But I want to take you to what is considered the twin passage to Jeremiah 31. It's, a, it's Ezekiel 11. It tells us how God now makes a people for himself under the new covenant. We read, Now I'll give them one heart and a new spirit. I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. Those are the moral aspects of the law. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Infant males no longer need to be uh, circumcised on the eighth day after they're born because now we see that God circumcises the heart. Romans 2, 29. God the Holy Spirit takes out that heart of stone and gives a heart of flesh, which means you, Christian, have a, has a heart that has life, a heart that has been breathed upon by God himself. 
here's what's going on in these twin passages, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 11. In the new covenant, the law is now internalized and the spirit works from the inside out. Under the old covenant, great effort was made to see personal change from the outside in. That's a massive change, right? Is it not? Within modern day Judaism, this aspect of uh, working from the outside in is still the case. Uh, earlier this year, my youngest daughter and I, we went through the book of Exodus together. And we did it in an unorthodox way. We found this video series. There were 16 or 17 um, videos, two hours long. And we didn't sit down and watch two hours and we broke it up. So it took us several months. And they just walked through the entire book of Exodus. And in this video series, there's like eight to 12 Jewish or Christian scholars. And uh, by the way, parents, this is a great example of our kids pick up way more than we give them credit for. Like my 10-year-old was picking up a ton as she was listening to scholars with PhDs walking us through the book of Exodus. It's a parenthetical note, just pointing it out. And so we're watching this, right? And then we get to the Ten Commandments, which is in Exodus 20. And this Jewish scholar says very clearly that Judaism is a works-based religion. It is behavior modification, right? Undergoing change requires doing what is right in accordance with the law. That, his words, not mine. If I told you the name of this Jewish scholar, half of you would definitely know, know this guy. But here's the deal. Not so with Christianity. Under the new covenant, a massive shift has taken place. God now works from the inside out. God replaces the heart of stone with a heart of flesh. That is stunning. It's absolutely amazing. That alone should cause us to praise God for the good work he has done in us because left on our own right, we can't do it. I would crumble. I would crumble under a faith tradition that's works-based because there's no way I could live up to it. No way. There's one more component of Hebrews 8.10 and Ezekiel 11 that I want you to consider as being part of the new covenant. God does not undo the good work that he has done. God, as I mentioned, will be their God. God doubled and tripled down when the son went to the cross to die. So here are the principles of the new covenant that we've seen so far. We've seen the true Israel. They live by faith. The law reapplied through Christ, one people with the one true God. God will never let his people go. Now, there are, there's another principle that I want to look at. The law is for all. Further evidence that it is the Spirit at work under the new covenant is in verse 11. And they shall not teach. That's interesting. We've got to sort that out. Does that mean we don't evangelize? That's not what's being said here. But we've got to think that through. Each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. When I read verse 11, my mind actually goes to Pentecost. It takes, my mind goes to Acts 2. At Pentecost, a work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and minds of people spread like wildfire. And the gospel continues to spread from the least to the greatest. What have we seen since Acts 2? 
we are seeing Jeremiah 31 being fulfilled. The work of God has gone from a tiny sliver of land where people resided east of the Mediterranean to the entire world. I mean, we can go back to Hebrews 6 and 7 and remember that Melchizedek blessed Abraham and Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek to ensure that the nations are now blessed. Let's go back to Genesis 12 and 14. And through the nations, there will be one people for one God. It's pretty stunning. From the least to the greatest. Here's one more principle of the new covenant according to Jeremiah 31. The fruit of the law is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That one's really important. The fruit of the law is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, I reject the notion that the law is bad and the gospel is good. When the law is pitted against the gospel, like two boxers going after it in a a ring, the law is again being massively misunderstood. The reason why the gospel is amazing is because how the law is applied. Christ is the superior sacrifice. Christ is the superior high priest. Christ is superior to all the Old Testament saints. And it is Christ who fulfills verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities under the new covenant. And I will remember their sins no more. Theologian um, Tom Schreiner has been my companion uh, as I've gone through the book of Hebrews. I don't agree with all of his conclusions, but he's an excellent theologian. He sums up verse 12 with such, I think, precision and clarity. And I want to read this for you. The four, he just threw the Greek in there, Hati, explains the basis upon which God's people truly know the Lord, giving the reason they are regenerate. Their new life finds its roots in the forgiveness of their sins. And when sins are truly forgiven, they are remembered no more. Old covenant sacrifices do not fully and finally forgive sins. By way of contrast, Christ's sacrifice brings genuine and lasting forgiveness. The new heart, that heart of flesh, Ezekiel 11, implanted in believers is based upon the sacrificial work of Christ on the forgiveness secured through his atoning death. Such forgiveness was never accomplished by Old Testament sacrifices. Christian, you have been forgiven because of the final and ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Your past sins, your present sins, and future sins are not held against you by God because of the blood of the new covenant, the blood of Christ. The theme of forgiveness, just so you know, it's going to ramp up as we continue through Hebrews. But for now, I truly want you to take it to heart. Take it to heart. You've been forgiven. He does not see those. That is it's not an excuse to sin. We're not going down the antinomian route. But actually we respond with joy and worship. What we're reading in Hebrews 8, verse 12, is simply straight gospel heat, man. Like, these are precious truths that change lives. 
It is the man and his message that is the source of our joy and hope. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that causes us to celebrate and worship every Sunday as we gather as a church. It is when we focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ every Sunday that propels us into the week to help us live as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And I would be remiss if I did not say the following. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, but you sense that something is going on in your heart and mind, perhaps you're having that Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 11 moment. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take these words recorded in the Gospel of Mark, the first words recorded of our Lord. I want you to take these words to heart. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. For every Christian in this room, I want to end with these words. Under the new covenant, under this better covenant. You have a message and you need to take this message to the nations. You need to insert yourself into God's plan. Get out of your own head and think you got your own plan. You insert yourself into God's plan to reach the nations. And you do that by sharing the gospel, this new covenant gospel with your neighbor with the barista at the coffee shop, with in, in that line, right? All the, when you pick your kids up from school and you're in line, you got all those parents, you're just kind of sitting there. Use that as an opportunity to share the gospel. You have a message of repentance and faith which leads to the forgiveness of sins. And with that said, praise God, hallelujah, and let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.